Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. Today we'll be reading out of John chapter 8. Uh, today we read John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. And why do we read the scripture together? The reason we read it, and it's not the most entertaining portion of our sermon, but the reason we read it is because of 1 Timothy chapter 4 that tells us not to neglect the public reading of scripture. So today we read it, and, and real quick, before we read it, I would like to place it in its context. If you've been here for any length of time, the Gospel of John breaks down into three main sections or an outline. You have eternity past in John chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 18, that in the beginning was the Word. And then John chapter 1, verse 19 through the end of chapter 12 is three years. And then John 13 through the end. Those eight chapters is three weeks. So like any... Good storyteller, John, as the Gospel of John unfolds, slows down time. And where we pick up in John 7, 8, and 9, I call it the Feast of Booths Discourse. Jesus has six more months left on earth, and he shares a discourse on his person. And as we read John chapter 8, verse 12, I want you to think about the Feast of Booths. It commemorates Israel's 40 years in the desert. Now, why is all that important? How did God lead the nation of Israel in that time? A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So notice it with me with that frame of reference. Verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you testify about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the second testimony, and the Father who sent me testify about me. Verse 19. So they were saying to him, where is your Father? Has he repeated this once or twice before? Yes. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Amen. The closer you are to the light, the easier it is to follow. Jesus is the pillar of light, and the world is in darkness. A famous pastor, and you probably will recognize the name, John MacArthur says it this way, he says, We live in a dark world, a world eclipsed by the long shadow of sin. In desperation, the lost people around us search frantically for truth, without the faculty to find it. And because of their spiritual blindness, they only stumble deeper into sin's hopeless gloom, finding themselves utterly trapped in the snares of immorality, idolatry, and all the unfruitful deeds of darkness. The world is in darkness, and Jesus is the pillar of fire. He is the light of the world, piercing through the darkness, guiding all those that will follow to the light of life. But how do we remain close to him in a world of temptation, in a world of darkness, in a world of confusion? 
Allow me to ask you the question. This is on a more personal, kind of on a side note. Uh, how many of you have ever been in total darkness? Okay. So where you cannot even see the hand in front of your face. Now whether you're in a cave or in a dark room, wherever you are, I want you to picture that moment in time. Now, if you lost your cell phone, which is a flashlight these days, or if you lost your flashlight, what would the, what would the feelings be? Fear, anxiety, lostness. Those feelings in the midst of darkness is the way the world fears without the light of God. Fifteen years ago or so, a uh, gentleman named uh, Bill Varnado, some of you know him, he's still uh, alive and well and uh, he is a World War II veteran, and some 15 years ago or so, he led the youth group here at Calvary Bible Church on a caving expedition. Uh, we call it spelunking, or whatever, I don't even know what that word means. But uh, I, I quickly found out that this man that was probably in his early 80s or late 70s of the time was in better shape than some of the students. And so we, we crawled far into this cave... And then he asked us to turn out all of the lights. So you have 20 students in the hollow of the earth without light. Without light, in the midst of darkness, there is no hope of rescue. There is no hope of escape. And fear and anxiety tightens. Without light, darkness overwhelms. That is the world. And that is the outcome of sin. But today we see in John chapter 8 verse 12 that Jesus is the light of the world. But how do we, in the midst of a world that is darkened by sin, how do we stand firm in the midst of all of the temptation, all of the discouragements, all of the enticing of sin that we have all around us? How do we continue to follow closely the light of the world? And that is the question we answer today. If you have your Bible, go to John chapter 8 verses 12 through 20 and we will unpack that. Now, originally speaking, I intended to go to verse 30, but I realized after just doing a little bit of study that just in eight through tw- tw- chapter 8, 12 through 20, that in those 8 or 9 verses, there's so much in there that I could not even possibly get to verse 30, so we will cut it a little bit short. But today, if you notice from a bird's eye perspective, the passage in John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20, it really breaks down into three main sections. You have an assertion in verse 12, you have the Pharisees' accusation in verse 13, and then you have his answer in verses 14 through 20. Notice with me his assertion that Jesus makes. Verse 12. Then Jesus spoke again. Notice that word again. He spoke to them again, saying, I am... The light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What is Jesus' assertion? It is that he is the light of the world. If you have your notes, it should be the first couple of blanks, that he is the light of the world. Now, uh, I'm going to give you a a preface, a, a, I don't know what you would call it, a precursor, a warning Caution, okay? Just to let you know, I'm going to spend about like 75% of our time just on verse 12. Because what I see in verse 12, it's just packed full with not only theological, but also practical truths that we see in just this one verse, verse 12. If you notice here in verse 12, it is one of the seven I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John. 
The other six I am statements is that Jesus is the bread of life, which we discovered earlier in the Gospel of John. What does that mean that he's the bread of life? That he is the provider of life. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the gate. He says also in the Gospel of John, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And here in the second I am statement in the Gospel of John, he says that he is the light of the world. What is, what's the question attached to that? What does he mean by he is the light of the world? But what, before I give you the answer to that question, I want to actually unpack three different observations just on this one phrase, that I am the light of the world. The observation number one comes on those two words, I am. In the original language, I'm about to get it all uh, TMI on you. I do this at least once a week, typically. What that means is too much information, okay? So if I lose you in the next, for the next 15 minutes or so, I'll pick you back up here in just a few minutes. But the word I am, those two words in English are really two words in the original language. They're the Greek words ego and then amy. Ego is the pronoun I and then amy is I am. So quite literally what Jesus is saying in verse 12, he says, I, I am the light of the world. Okay, so some of you probably ask me, okay, why is that significant? If you were here, I believe it is in John chapter 6, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, then you may remember why this is important. Jesus says to the Jewish nation in the first century in John chapter 8 that I, I am, what does that mean? That Jesus is Yahweh, that he is Jehovah. Now, okay, what does Yahweh signify? There are... There are several Old Testament names that God goes by. You have one that's Elohim, and another one's El Shaddai or El Elyon. There's a host of different names that God has in the Old Testament. But there is none as sacred and as important as the name of Yahweh. The name, if you're a Jew in the first century, and you hear Jesus say in verse 12 that I, I am, that he is claiming to be Yahweh, your eyes uh, light up and your jaw hits the floor. Because what is he saying? That he is Yahweh, that he is the covenant-keeping God, that he is the true God of all gods. So Jesus proclaims, I, I am, ego, Amy, that he is Yahweh. But what does Yahweh actually mean? If you were here in John chapter 6, and I talk about this on a pretty regular basis, but the definition of Yahweh comes from Exodus chapter 3. You can turn there if you want to, but I will briefly read. When we come to Exodus chapter 3, where are we in the story of the Bible? That Moses is out in the desert, and he finds a bush that is burning, but that is not consumed. And he comes before this bush, and God speaks... And God tells Moses to go to Egypt to pronounce to, to Pharaoh to free his people. And then Moses says this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. And Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is God's name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am sent you. The name Yahweh means I am who I am. In other words, what? 
that there is nothing to compare God to, that there is no peer, there is no co-equal, that there can be nothing that truly describes Yahweh, I am who I am, that there is nothing comparable, that He is the God of all gods. That is what the name Yahweh means. It signifies to the Jew in the first century that He is the covenant-keeping God, but really, he, Yahweh says that He is the God. He's not just a God, but He's I am who I am, that there is no equal in the universe. Observation number one from I am the light of the world is that Jesus is Yahweh. You've heard, if you're a Jew in the first century, you've heard your whole life that God is called Yahweh. And just think about, just think about the, the craziness, what Jesus is saying in John chapter 8, verse 12. Because the Pharisees, the Jews, what are they seeing directly in front of them? They're seeing a human being. I think sometimes we think that Jesus had this kind of uh, ghostly outline around him, kind of unlaw, you know, floating around. But here in the first century, Jesus is just a human being. He's flesh and blood to them. And all of a sudden, he's standing in the temple, proclaiming himself to be Yahweh. Imagine hearing that for the very first time. I would imagine your jaw would hit the floor and you would be a bit shocked. But what's the implication for us today that Jesus is, I am who I am, that he is Yahweh, Friends, that we, when we read in the Gospel of John or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that we do not read, we do not worship, we do not sing to or praise just a God, but that Jesus is the God. That He is supreme, that He is sovereign, that He is the creator of the universe, that He is Savior to the world, that we do not just worship a God. We don't just worship the prophet, but we worship the God of all gods who is Yahweh, who has no equal. Can I just say it this way as well? Only the God of the universe could write a love story such as this. The thought escapes me that God would enter into flesh to die for our sins. Only the true God of all gods could write a redemptive story that we find in the scriptures. So observation number one is that Jesus is Yahweh. But then notice the second piece. I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to take like 75% of my time and just look at verse 12. It says in verse 12, Then God said, Jesus said again, spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Okay, so what else is Jesus telling the nation of Israel? Go with me on this for just a second. What, what, what feast, what holiday did they just get done celebrating? If you've been here in John 7, 8, and 9, what feast did they just get done commemorating? It was the Feast of Booze. Now, what is that? There are three feasts in the nation of Israel, annual feasts, that they require a pilgrimage. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booze. Now, the Feast of Booze, I'm going to get TMI. Okay, I'm losing some of you. That's cool. I'll pick you up later. So, the Feast of Booze is a, a feast that commemorates what? commemorates Israel's 40 years in the desert. Why is that important? So in John chapter 7, it just finished. The Feast of Booths just commemorated, and the next day, perhaps, Jesus tells all of the Jewish nation that he is the light of the world. What is he really saying to them? How was the nation of Israel led in the desert? They were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. 
It says this in John chapter 7 regarding the Feast of Booze. After seeing Jesus walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booze, was near. I believe Jesus is saying in John chapter 8 verse 12 that he is Yahweh, that he is Jehovah, but that he is also the pillar of fire. Because no time has passed between the Feast of Booths commemorating in the end of John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. Basically what he's saying is that the thing that you just got done remembering, I am he. But what is the significance of this idea? What is Jesus saying to the nation of Israel and to us today? That Jesus is the light of the world, that he guides all those that will follow him out of the sin and out of the darkness of the world and to the light of salvation and to the fruitfulness of life that he brings. I believe Jesus takes this opportunity in John chapter 8 at the end of the Feast of Booze to say that he is Yahweh, but that he is the pillar of fire leading all people that will follow him to the light of life. But then notice the third peace in this phrase what does jesus really mean by that he is the light of the world jesus proclaims to be yahweh he proclaims to be the pillar of fire but he what does it really mean that he is the light of the world you know as a preacher you know uh on tuesday mornings i'll back up a little bit on tuesday mornings during staff meeting i i usually have more questions than answers but just coming up into the pulpit with questions and not answers really doesn't do anybody any good. So uh, what, what, I, what I did this week is I, I asked myself, okay, so I, I think, I know that Jesus is associating himself with being Yahweh, I am who I am, that he's saying, because the Feast of Booths was just finished, he's saying that he is the pillar of fire by night, that he is guiding all people that will follow him away and out of darkness. But then what, what does it really mean that Jesus is the light of the world? Where would you find your answer? What I did is I found my answer by looking, by doing two different word studies. I did a word study on the word light and the word, and on the word world. The word light here is the Greek word phos. That's where we get the word photon, okay? The Greek word phos is used 73 times in the New Testament and is used 33 times by John the author. So what other books in the Bible did John write? He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. So within those five books that John uses the word light 33 out of 73 total times in the New Testament. So what I did was I took, I took, found all the times that John said phos, the Greek word light, and I looked it up, and this is what it means. According to John chapter 12 verse 35, light represents a path to walk. According to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, light is, represents the holiness of God, that God is light without any darkness. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, light represents God's infinite, never running low on grace and power. Okay? So light re- reflects God's holiness, the path we should walk, and God's infinite power. Okay? So what does it mean? Hold that thought. What does the word word world mean in the original language? The Greek word behind world here is the Greek word cosmos. This is where we get cosmology, which represents a study of the stars or universe. And if you were to take the word cosmos and do a a word study on it, you would find that the word cosmos really doesn't mean that the ground we walk on. That's a different Greek word itself. The word cosmos represents the entire domain of darkness. 
That the entire universe that has been darkened by the effects of sin. Which includes what? Everything else besides God and His perfection. So think about the word world and cosmos. It is everything that has been tarnished by sin, which is everything else besides God. Allow me to put it together. What does Jesus mean that he is the light of the world, that he is Yahweh? Yes, that he is the pillar of fire, which they just got done remembering. But that Jesus, being the light of the world, means that he is the solution to sin. He is the solution to the darkness of the world. That he is the answer to sin, to the mistakes we make. That not only is he the savior of the world, but he has the path through the darkness and the deserts of life. Jesus is the solution to sin. And let me be even more bold. Jesus is the only solution to sin. Other religions, every other religion, offers a solution to sin. What do they say, right? What do other religions say? If you're a good person, right? If you abide by the book or the law, that if you pray five times a day, or if you pray towards Mecca, or you make a pilgrimage, or if you uh, meditate long enough that you can escape this world of darkness, that you can, if you're good enough, you can reincarnate to something else, that if you are good enough, that you can earn heaven, and what a load of baloney! Because we can't be good enough, amen? I mean, just think about it from a philosophical perspective. Who is God? He is perfect, right? And every one of us is imperfect. Can I get an amen to that? How can an imperfect being measure up to perfection? We cannot be good enough to earn our way into heaven. And that is why we need the solution or the answer to the darkness of the world. Christianity is the only religion that says this, that you can't earn heaven, but that God in His mercy and His grace came down from heaven to extend to you grace as a gift. What a mind-blowing theological uh, principle that we cannot be good enough. Jesus is the only solution to sin. That we can try to be good enough. We can try to be a good person we could try to stack up enough bricks to make a bridge and to barge our way into heaven, but no amount of good works will ever make you perfect. Jesus is the only solution to sin. Jesus came, you know, if I was Jesus being Yahweh, the most sovereign creator of the world's, and I had repeated myself in the Gospel of John like 18,000 times of who I am, I would probably grow weary and tired, and I would start just zapping people. But here Jesus extends his love and his grace. He communicates to the nation of Israel once again that he is truly the solution to the darkness of the world, that he has come to fix what is broken. So Jesus makes an assertion. He says that I am the light of the world. What does that mean? That he is Yahweh, that he is the pillar of fire, leading those that live in darkness to the truth, and that he is, number three, that he is the answer to the darkness that we see. Now, uh, we are 30 minutes into this sermon, and I am halfway through verse 12. Okay, moving on. 
But then notice the second piece of Jesus' assertion. Jesus says in verse 12 of chapter 8, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Why does that make sense? Right? If Jesus is the pillar of fire, and if we follow him, then all of our paths are lit. That we will have the light of life. That we will never have darkness if we follow Jesus Christ. But there seems to be a little bit of a conditional statement here. That we have to follow in order to stay in the light. In the original language, I'm going to get, let's just TMI again, I'm sorry, just I'm full of it today. Um, not, yeah. um, but if you notice here, it says that he that follows me will not... Walk in darkness. Now, in the original language, there is that, that phrase is very emphatic. There's actually a double negative here. Now, my English teacher told me in high school not to use the double negative. But in Greek, it's perfectly fine. It actually shows emphasis. What verse 12 actually says is, The one that follows me will not never walk in darkness, will have the light of life. So the ones who follow the light of the world will never walk in darkness. The true disciples, those who truly follow him each and every day, will not be find themselves on a path that is not lit. Jesus' assertion is that he is the light of the world, and he who follows him will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. I want you to think about the pillar of fire. The Feast of Booze just got done in John chapter 7. Perhaps the next day Jesus unfolds to the nation of Israel that he is the light of the world, that he is the answer to sin, and that he is the one guiding all those out of darkness. But I want you to think about the nation of Israel sitting there in the desert. If you've ever read that story, then I would imagine a picture comes to mind that there is this giant tornado of fire. And I just picture the two or three million Israelites are all around the fire and you see the shadows from the pillar of fire casting upon their tents. But what happens if the Israelites at night decide to wander away, that they eventually escape the light that is provided by God? I believe Christians at times, I believe that once saved, always saved. I believe that you cannot lose your salvation in the slightest. But I do believe also that at times we as Christians can veer off course. That we can become enticed by the darkness of the world, by the broken flesh that we live in, by the sensuality of the world, and we can find ourselves veering off course Even a ship that is off one degree can find itself completely lost in the world. My question for you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is have you veered off course? Does God light the path that you walk? You see Jesus' assertion in verse 12. We see, then we see the accusation that the Pharisees bring to him. Notice the accusation that the Pharisees say in verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself, therefore your testimony is not true. What's, what's, what's the Pharisees accusation here in verse 13? That Jesus is lying. That is, that's basically what they're telling him. That, that he, that Jesus is lying. Why? Why do they say it? Because there's not a second witness to testify as to Jesus' authenticity. But where do they get the idea that his testimony is not true and it can only be proven by two witnesses? 
According to the Old Testament law, every fact in a legal matter had to be established by two or more witnesses. According to Numbers 35.30, Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. So in typical fashion, the Pharisees are trying everything in their power to discredit this man named Jesus, and they discredit him in their eyes on a technicality But what, what has Jesus proven over and over again throughout the Gospel of John? That his word is true. First off, Jesus doesn't need to prove that he's true because he is God. His word is true. But what has he proven to this point? Who is another testimony, testifier of Jesus' authenticity? You have John the Baptist. You have God the Father. Right? What his works, the, the Old Testament scriptures, there are so many things that Jesus had proven Jesus' authenticity, but they are completely blind to the fact. So we see his assertion and accusation, and then notice Jesus' answer to them, verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge only according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But if, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it. But I and the Father who sent me, even in your law, it has been written that a testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. But then notice what they say in verse 19. This would be maddening if I was Jesus. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Right? They're thinking about his earthly father, which he doesn't have one. Right? The father is his father. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one sees them because his hour had not yet come. How does Jesus answer their accusation? First, in verse 14, he says he doesn't need a second witness because his testimony is true. Second, his second witness is the Father, which he said that over and over again. But then notice the third thing he says in verse 19. Notice the profound sadness, what he says. You neither know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. What's the sadness with that statement? What do the Pharisees want more than anything else? They want to please God. And how do they attempt to do it? They attempt to do it by piling up more rules and more laws, by bullying the nation of Israel to be obedient to all these man-made rules so that God would not send them into judgment again. So the very thing they set this do to obey and to know the Father and to do His will is the very thing that they do not do. Why? Because... God is not interested in a heart of obedience out of a heart of legalism. God is interested in a heart of obedience from a heart of humility and love. God is not pleased by legalism. God is not pleased by us bullying other people under the weight of ridiculous rules. God is pleased with obedience from a heart of love. In a world of darkness, what should we do? My point today is quite simple, is to follow the light and not the darkness. To follow the light and not the darkness. If we pause, I'm just going to talk. If we really pull down the mask of Christianity... If you've been in the church for any more than a few months, then you know what I'm talking about. 
that externally speaking, we like to pretend that everything's good and we got it all together. But if we are truly honest, at times the world in its darkness is tempting. It is enticing. The darkness is very tempting. The darkness promises what? Sin promises what? The world promises what? It promises us freedom. It promises us temporary relief, wealth. It promises us happiness. The sin at times whispers in our ear that they can satisfy, but truly only God can satisfy in this world. I want you to think about something else. As a Christian, we know biblically We know practically, we know personally, we know theologically that sin is very enticing because we live in a broken world, that we have a broken flesh, and that we have a world that has other standards besides God. But friends, listen to me, all sin, all sin has consequence, right? All sin has consequence. If we drink too much, we blow out our liver. If we drive too fast... What happens? We probably die in a car accident that all sin, despite what it tells us, has consequences that we do not want, despite its telling us in our ears that it can provide freedom or relief or happiness. The darkness of the world promises and entices us to go that direction, but it will always lead us to destruction and consequence. In a world of darkness... Let us follow the light and not the world. But the million dollar question is, okay, Byron, how do we resist darkness? We, we all know, if you've been in church for any length of time, we all know that we should follow God, we should follow Jesus Christ, that we should, that we should dedicate our life to Him, that He who follows Him will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. We all know these things, but we all still struggle at times with sin. Can we get an amen to that one? How many of you struggle with sin at every day? Okay, this guy up here. Okay, but how do we avoid the temptation of the world? How do we stay in the light? That is my what I would like to answer in the last part of my sermon today. If you have your notes on the back of it, you will find a completely different application than what I have this morning. If you notice on your notes, there is four different things that I have there, but today I want to say something completely different. And the question is, why? Uh, Last night at about 8.30 at night, I was just meditating on this message and kind of thinking about it, and I just felt the Holy Spirit telling me at this point, Byron, talk about something else. Steer the ship in a different direction. Answer a different question. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and your goal and your desire is to stay in the light, to follow Him, to have your path to life lit by the grace and righteousness of God, if that is you, then how do we stay close to the light? I'm going to offer you five different things to stay close to God in the midst of the darkness of the world. Number one is this, to remember your enemy. To remember your enemy. What does it say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8? What does it say? It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, being fir- firm in your faith. If you want to stay close to the light and avoid the enticing ways of the world and want to remain in righteousness and walk with the Lord, number one, remember your enemy. Number two, remember who you are. I find myself, when I talk about sin and avoiding it, I find the temptation of my heart 
to only talk about habit control. That if you set up enough barriers, if you set up enough barricades, if you have enough accountability, if you memorize the Bible enough, if you pray enough, then you will be able to resist temptation. Which those have a place. But if we don't remember our enemy, who is trying to pull us down, if we do not remember who we are in Christ, then we will, we will, be, we will run ragged, we will be running on empty at all times, and eventually the sin and the darkness of the world will pull us in. What does the book of Romans say? Romans chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you have now been freed from sin, because becoming slaves to righteousness. Friends, you have the option to resist sin. Why? Because you have been freed from the chains of sin and death, and now you are a slave to righteousness, that you are a new creation. Remember your enemy, remember who you are. But then number three, this is a habit control measure, okay? It's just part of walking the Christian life. Number three, to really resisting the darkness of the world and staying in the light of the pillar of fire is number three, is to spend time in God's Word. Let's not, but let's not run from that. Let's not become legalistic about that. What does the Scripture say? I'm hearing Psalm 119. How could a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. We remain close to the light by spending time in God's word. But then number four is spending time with other Christians. Spending time with other Christians. I think one of the greatest lies of the enemy is that you can grow in the spiritual life without the help of others. That you can't trust other people, you can't trust people in the church because they'll talk about you, that you that you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps and that you can be good enough, that if I am disciplined enough, that I don't need anybody else. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You need authentic community. You need people in your life to hold you accountable, to confess your sins to, to one another and pray for one another so you can be healed. What does the scripture say over and over again? But encourage one another day after day. Do not forsake the assembly together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. We need other believers so that we stay in the light far from the chains of darkness. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 says this, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be able to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me repeat that. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. To stay close to the light in the midst of a dark world, to stay close to the answer of sin, we must remember our enemy, remember who we are, spend time in God's word, spend time with others, and then number five. It is that when we get off course, that when the sins of the world and his temptations entice us away from the righteousness and perfection of God, that we then exercise 1 John 1.9. That you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number five is this, that when we get off course, let us repent and confess our sins and get back on in the light. Listen to me, friends. 
We talked last week about the woman who was caught in adultery, and she was splattered all with shame and judgment from all those around her. One of the one of the weapons of the enemy is to tell you that when you make a mistake or when you sin, that you should be ashamed of yourself, that the grace of God couldn't possibly forgive you. And when you feel shame from something, what do you always do? You always back away from that area. Friends, listen to me. If you are far from God, if you, if you feel like you haven't walked with the Lord in a long time, First John 1 night, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We worship a God that knows all of our mistakes, and despite it, He continues to forgive us. Let us not follow, let us follow the light of the world, because if we follow Him, we will never walk in darkness, we'll have the light of life. Let us resist the enemy, and it says in the scripture that he will flee from us. Let us meditate on his word. Let us get in communion with other believers that caution us and that hold us accountable, and let us live lives that are not enticed and pulled away by the deceitfulness of sin, but one that has lived in the light of God and in his word. I close my messages every week with the same story, the same principle. If you are far from God, if you've never trusted in Him as your Lord and Savior, if you've never believed in His name, then He offers you the opportunity to be saved by faith in Him. For by grace we are saved through faith, and in ourselves is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. If, if you've never started a relationship with the Lord, it really begins with believing in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And once that happens, then your identity is completely changed. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've never believed in Him, if you've never surrendered your life to Him as Lord of your life, then I would encourage you to go before Him and pray, asking Him to save your soul despite all of your sin. Here in just a moment, during the prayer, I will ask Jason and Laurel to come forward and just be prayer partners. If you would like to pray with somebody to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then they will be here up front, available during the last song and after the service. Bow with me a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Um, Lord, I, I, uh, who am I to talk about the greatness and majesty of Yahweh, of a God that has no comparison or equal? Who am I to talk about a God that leads people out of the darkness and into the light? Who am I to discuss a Savior that is the answer to the brokenness of the world? But that truth that you are the light of the world just blows my mind. Lord, I just pray that we as Christians, if we are believers in here, that we would not be enticed by the world. That if we are currently in our life, that we would repent and confess our sins and realign our life to follow you in all areas. And Lord, if we do not know you as Savior, if we aren't sure, if we have dedicated our life to you, Lord, I pray that we would believe, because through you, you offer eternal life and salvation by grace through faith. I pray for all those that are trying to start this Christian life, that they would trust in you as their Master and Savior. Lord, I thank you for Calvary Bible Church. I thank you for those tuning in online. I thank you for your word and how it guides us and shapes our lives. And thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen.